readers! Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. My Time Will Come is the inspiring story of activist and poet Ian Manuel, who, at age 14, was sentenced to life in prison. He survived 18 years in solitary confinement through his own determination and dedication to art, until he was freed as part of an incredible crusade by the Equal Justice Initiative. Full of unexpected twists and turns as it describes a struggle for redemption, My Time Will Come shows the human capacity to transcend adversity through determination and art. Now let's join editor Errol McDonald in conversation with author Ian Manuel. Good afternoon, Ian. How you doing? Hey, Errol. I'm fine, man. Good to see you. It's almost, we're almost there. Almost there. May yeah. 4th, right around the corner. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, feel like I'm giving birth to a, <laughs> a child or something. My first child is coming. Feeling a little jittery? Um, I'm not jittery, just a lot of, uh, I'm under a lot of pressure, man. Just a lot of pressure. Uh, and But I just feel like things are going to, gonna be good for me man you know i really do well my time will come your time will come on may 4th but my time will come is a bold title um what gave you the confidence to always want to call your book my time will come well there's a couple there's a couple things uh to be honest i uh i uh i wrote a poem after my resentencing uh, after my resentencing, when I was, uh, after I went back to court to be resentenced and the life, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned my life sentences. When and, was that? Uh, that was in 2011. Uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned my life sentences in 2010. Um, and I was officially taken back to be resentenced in 2011. And I thought I was going home. Uh, but the judge crushed my hopes and my aspirations of being released that year and resentenced me to 65 years in prison. And uh, I remember going back, to, going back to prison and being distraught, but I turned to my poetry. Poetry was something that I had started leaning on to get through uh, 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 just the intensity of my incarceration. And so I, I wrote this poem called My Time Gonna Come. My Time Gonna Come. And uh it was just so inspirational. All the prisoners loved it. And so I said that if I ever got an opportunity, that's that's what I would stick with for the title of my memoir. What did you mean, my time's going to come? Uh, I, I meant that despite the obstacles that was in the way, despite the improbability of me ever getting out of prison, that one day I uh, not only would be released, but that the world would be able to uh, witness my story and my talent. I felt like I had a gift to share with the world. And I just felt like that one day my time would come to, to have that opportunity to not only be released, but to share my gift with the world. Okay, the book is called, the subtitle is A Memoir of Crime, Punishment, Hope, and Redemption. I'd like you to break it down. What was the crime? What was the punishment? What was the hope? And what was the redemption? Uh, thank you uh, for that question. The, the crime was a attempted murder committed by a 13-year-old child 
Uh, I was also charged with the robbery that I didn't commit, but uh, the guy that was with the victim, the female victim that was shot during this case, her name is Debbie Bagry. He said that uh, he gave me $3. And so that's why I ended up being sentenced to life for a robbery that I never committed. So that's the crime. Uh, the punishment was uh, life in prison followed by life probation. Uh, the hope was that, you know, despite me being sentenced to life in prison and despite all of my family dying while I was incarcerated, that I would be able to be released one day and the world would be able to see me shine in my, in my, in my true self and not, not the person that the judge had initially set out, set out that said that I was a minister to society. I wanted the world to be able to see me in my true, my true self. How and many years did you spend in prison and how many of those were spent in solitary confinement? Oh, that's an easy question. Uh, I was, uh, I spent 26 years in prison from 1990 to 2016. Uh, and I spent 18 consecutive years in solitary confinement. Uh, total together, I, I would say I spent about 20, 21 years in solitary, but 18 of those years was consecutive from George H.W. Bush administration to Barack Obama's administration is I, I was in a cell the size of a walk-in freight elevator. How did you hold on to your sanity during all those years? I held on my, t uh, that's a great question. Uh, there was a couple things. Uh, one, my mom, I, I always heard my mom's voice in my head and she would say, Ian, uh, when I was younger, she would say, Ian, no matter what, don't let them take your mind from you. Don't let them take your mind. And I don't know who they were supposed to be, this this, this system. I, I envisioned it when, once I was in prison. Was, it was the system that not allowed them to take my mind from me. And also it was through my poetry. Uh, you know, I started creating these poems uh, and my imagination, living in my imagination uh, instead of uh, the painful reality of prison. And it was, it was those two things that helped me not lose my mind. How did you hold on to hope all those years? Because from a reading of the book, one imagines that you were always certain that you would get out right. against all odds. How did you hold on to that hope? I mean, it was a growth process. I, and I just think uh, we as humans can will things into existence. I don't think, I don't even know if we as humans understand that we have the power to create new realities. And I just, I just felt inside me that I had not taken a life and that I didn't deserve to have my life taken from me. And I just felt like, you know, God, my mom was at God's footsteps just praying let my baby go, let my baby come home. And that one day that I would be released, man. I just felt that in my heart. I, I don't know if I can properly explain it, but it was, it's just, you have to believe in something so much that you will it into existence because the opposite of that is to believe that you would die in prison. And I think that would have crushed me. So do you feel redeemed? Do you feel that you have achieved redemption after your long ordeal? Yes, I believe I'm on the road to redemption. I feel like I, I've accomplished a lot of my goals that I had in solitary confinement, but I'm not satisfied. Like uh, most people probably would be in my position would be like, yeah, I made it out of prison. 
I I got a a a a a a brand new memoir on the way by the one of the biggest publishers in the world, and I'm satisfied. I've been redeemed, but I I want I want the movie the, the next. You have to set other goals for yourself. I want people to actually feel the enormity and how improbable how improbable it is for me to be here. Like this does not happen. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court just the other day came out with a new ruling to crush these kids' aspirations of ever getting out. So uh, I just, I want the world to see how improbable it was for me to be here and that I feel like a, I, I was anointed at an early age, man, uh, to, to do what I'm doing today. Let's go back to the crime and to your eventual relationship with Debbie Bakery. What were the circumstances of the crime? The circumstances of the crime was uh, I, uh, I I was on a porch with my girlfriend at the time. Her name is her name was Lydia. She was about thirteen, about the same age I was. So I don't know how much of a girl since girlfriend she really was, because we both were kids. But uh, I was approached by uh, a guy that uh, I was trying to get my girlfriend to go upstairs with me, but she wouldn't do it. And a guy came to ask me that I want to go to the girl uh, the game room. And I told him, no, I didn't. I was chilling with my girl. Then another guy came and another guy came. And then finally I agreed to go with the last guy. It was He had a gun and he said, let's go downtown and do, do a robbery. Went downtown with, with my friend to do this, do this robbery. And they just kept trying to rob people in broad daylight in open spaces. And I was against it. And uh, we ended up sitting out on the curb and making a pact that the next people that we approached would be the people that we robbed. And it just so happened it was Debbie Bagery and... Uh, a male friend by the name of Daniel Del Rosso. And uh, we approached the car. I had the gun. The guy asked it, uh, if, if we had some, if, if, if they had any money. I thought I heard the, the lady said, yes. I pulled out the gun. She screamed. I fired. And everything after that was a blur. I, I remember at, uh, shooting at the, the lady again, shooting at the man again. Uh, thankfully, the guy wasn't hit. And Debbie was only hit once. And uh, I, I remember my friend searching the man for money. And I turned around back to the housing projects of Central Park where I was born and raised at. And I asked them, did they get anything? And they said, Ian, they said Jim Jim, which was my nickname. He didn't have nothing. And so. Now, uh, now even though you shot Debbie only once, she was shot in the face. Yes. Um, and as a result of that, had to have multiple surgeries yeah. over an extended period of time. As much as she was hurt, she eventually became a champion for your freedom. Can yeah. you describe your relationship with her a bit? Yeah, I can. I can. Uh, I, uh, it was around Christmas of 1991. I was, uh, I think I was 14 years old at the time. And I was allowed to make a phone call, and I uh, I placed the call to Debbie because I had got her her phone number and her address out of my legal work. It was in the police report, and I called Debbie Collect, and uh, I remember back then you could just press zero and the operator would patch you through. And I remember her picking up the phone and saying, "Can uh, the operator saying, will you accept a collect call from Ian?" And Debbie said, can you ask him his last name? And I said, Manuel. And 
I don't remember much about that first conversation except that I once she is tempted to call, I said, Debbie, uh, I'd like to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and to apologize for shooting you in the face uh, a year ago. And she said, she asked me a question that no 14 year old should ever have to answer. She said, Ian, why did you shoot me? And I just remember saying that it was a mistake. It all happened so fast. We talked, I asked her, could I write, I hung up, I asked her, could I call back? I called back and uh, I, I wrote her a letter. She didn't answer immediately. It was many months later before she answered. And uh, once that happened, she, uh, we, we began a correspondence and became friends. And she wrote me for a few years and, and people were calling her crazy and letting her husband particularly was saying, let him rot in prison. Like this guy tried to take your life while you communicating with him. But she believed in me. She saw something in me that was worth uh, preserving. Now, the other extraordinary person in your eventual freedom was, of course, Brian Stevenson. Yes. Executive director of EJI, Equal Justice Initiative. How did he enter your life? And um, how did EJI work with you to accomplish your freedom? Well, uh, that's a tough, tough to describe because he, Brian came into my life literally like manna from heaven. Like that's how I describe it because I got this letter in the mail uh, where it was, I, I remember signing for this legal letter and it was from this guy in, in Alabama. And I, I didn't know anybody in Alabama. And basically the letter said that uh, I'm the executive director of a nonprofit law firm in uh, Montgomery, Alabama and we primarily handled death penalty cases, but we started a new project to work with juveniles. And I believe that there may be room to overturn a sentence like yours for life without the possibility of parole for a juvenile that didn't kill anybody. So if you don't have a lawyer, here's a stamp envelope and here's my phone number to reach out and call me. I did both. I, I was able to call him uh, by permission from a Lieutenant in solitary and I wrote him a letter. And uh, he sent a couple of attorneys down to take a look into my case. They eventually came back with a retainer agreement. And then it was a long uphill fight. I mean, Brian wrote me in 2006. I didn't get out in 2016. A lot had to happen for me to get out. Like the U.S. Supreme Court. I had to go to the U.S. Supreme Court twice uh, during that time span. Uh, the, 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 the judge... Uh, had resentenced me from life to life for uh, like to 65 years in prison. Uh, another case had to come out of Florida called P Peters versus State. But what I what I like about uh, the Equal Justice Initiative is that they didn't give up on me. They continued to fight. And so, 10 years after that first letter from Brian, I walked out of prison a free man. In addition to Brian Stevenson, who are your heroes? Uh, Brian Stevenson. Uh, uh, you know. Debbie Bagri, uh, the whole staff, Mariah Morrison definitely uh, was a social worker that Brian hired to, to help me uh, get out of prison. And, uh, you know, just people like that, people that are so selfless that, that does the work without, they don't do it for the claim. They do it because they really care and to try to change the system. In addition to um, spending two thirds of your life essentially in prison, um, now you're out for the rest of your life. 
Okay. How's it been becoming reacquainted with life as you knew it as a child? Oh, it's been tough. Uh, I will not sit up here and try to fabricate a story that everything's been wonderful. It is not. It's it's tough. Like right now, I have a juvenile justice podcast. I have a regular job that that's stress stressing me out because I have so many other projects that I'm working on and developing, and I have a short attention span. So it's difficult to you know that I think that's one of the uh the the traumas from solitary confinement is being able to focus on one thing for an extended period of time. So my day job here, I am calling people, telling people that they tested positive for coronavirus. But my, my attention isn't really there. Uh, I had to learn how to cross the street again and without being scared of cars. I still don't know how to drive. I still don't know how to cook. You know, it's been a it's it's a still a, it's a struggle for somebody uh, when you take them out out of society as a young as a young boy and then rebirth them in society as a as a 39 year old man. It's been a very uphill battle for me. What do you do to chill out? Uh what do I do to chill out? Uh, when, when, the, when society was open, I, I used to go play basketball at Chelsea Piers. Um, um, nowadays, I just, I go get a massage. I'm, uh, I go to the casino. <laughs> uh, what else did I do uh, to chill out? Uh, I hardly ever turn on the TV because they use the TV as a control mechanism in prison. Uh, but to me, just just writing sometimes uh if i'm really moved by something and if i'm motivated by something I, I i'll turn to something that sustained me in prison like writing but mostly man it's just being able to lay in peace and quiet in my own home without being under the threat of being beaten and gas is is me chilling out you accomplished one of your goals this year which was to attend the super bowl yes what was yes. that like yeah, I went to Tampa, so a, a great, great... You went back home. I went back home, so that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked that question, um, because in the book, they had the Super Bowl in Tampa um, while I was still in the county jail, and I couldn't attend it. I only could see the lights through the cell, the shining of the, the light, shining lights of the stadium. This and at time, what age were you in the county jail? I was uh, 14, I was 14. This time I was actually in Tampa uh, to participate in the festivities, but I, I, you know, the human, the way the human mind works, it's, it's never satisfied. So although I was free, I was like, I'm in my city, but no one knows me. I'm not big enough to actually attend the game. So now my goal is to actually attend the Super Bowl, you know? But it was it felt fun being home for the Super Bowl as a free man. Since you've been a free man, um, have you had a chance to, in addition to writing, um, read books? And if so, what are your favorite books? What's your favorite book in the last year? Uh, one of my favorite books is 50 Cent's uh, Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter. Uh, I, I read that book because, uh, you know, 50 is an inspiration to me. He came from nothing. Uh, uh, people wrote him off. He was the underdog. And so I read his book. And one of the things that stood out to me, a, uh, a couple of things that stood out to me is, and, I, and I've tried to do this with my book, actually. So one of the things that stood out to me is he said, 
with the marketing people, he would when he first got signed, he would attend the meetings to learn what they were doing to try to make his album be a, a big seller. So he could soak up knowledge and also apply, apply it to the streets or, or, or to his own business. Another thing from Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter that I, I learned was that he said something that I find true. He said, now that I'm rich and famous, people give me gifts all the time. But I don't need them now. Like I needed that stuff when I was struggling and trying to make it. And I find out a lot that people, once you make it, will try to put you on to things that you no longer need. And when, when you're struggling, trying to get where you're going, it's not a lot of people willing trying to, that's going, sticking their neck out, trying to help you. And so I think we as a society, as humans need to do better in that regard. Like not give it to the people that already got it, but try to help the people that are up on a struggling, trying to make it to the next level. My time will come. Can you grace us now by chanting a little bit of the poem? Yes. Uh, I promise you, the brunt of my oppression has a purpose. And the same person that you persecute will one day be worshipped. Though I stand before you bare-chested and shirtless, with my soul and emotions naked, just wanting to be nurtured. Yeah, despite the desperation, desertion, and hurting, my time gonna come. Though I compose this poem not knowing if I'll ever be able to perform it in an auditorium, I do it with the faith of a poet that believes he was born to do it like an acorn caught up in a storm, flung from the branch where it was born. You can only hold me back for so long. My time gonna come. And Thank then you. it goes on and on. Thank you, Ian. You're welcome. You're you welcome. Take care of yourself now. All right. All right, you too. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.